Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. Dr Ewan McTurk is an electrochemist and electric vehicle battery engineer. He heads up Plug Life Consulting Limited, assisting organisations with battery technology, electric vehicles, energy storage and charging infrastructure. Ewan also presents Plug Life Television, a YouTube channel to bust myths and explain complex processes within batteries, facilitating entire nations to switch to electric transport. His career in electrochemistry and electric vehicles was inspired by encountering an electric Peugeot 106 during his undergraduate applied physics degree. Following doctorate qualifications in lithium batteries, he's worked with the Warwick Manufacturing Group and Jacosi. It's time now to get down to the technical nitty-gritty within the transformation to electric vehicles. So it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you into the podcast. Thank you for having me. You are most welcome. I'm glad you're here. I've got lots and lots of questions for you, Ewan. So we'll start by uh, giving me a bit of background about how you came into this particular area. So you, you actually hit the nail on the head. I didn't choose the plug life. The plug life chose me. It was that Peugeot 106 electric, that chance encounter as I was going into the final year of my applied physics undergrad degree called Renewable Energy at the University of Dundee. Um, that car pulled up next to me, um, having just been acquired by the university, and I pestered the person who would become my project supervisor every day until he let me do something with that for my honours project. And um, the decision was, you know, this whole battery thing seems to be uh, you know, kicking off right now, so we should look into that. And that got me looking into um, lithium air, which is a breathing cell chemistry that actually has more in common with a fuel cell than with a lithium ion battery. Um, there was actually a, a leading research group, uh, one, of the, one of the best in the world um, on lithium air batteries, just across the Tay Bridge from Dundee at the University of St Andrews. So it was quite fitting to be uh, studying that. Um, so cue a crash course in electrochemistry, um, very much a, an applied version of applied physics. Um, and uh, yeah, so having having done a, a fair amount of characterization on the, the electric car and on this next generation of battery tech and kind of proposed some interesting ideas to pursue, I was lucky enough to join Professor Peter Bruce's research group at St Andrews University. They, they then relocated to Oxford where I met Professor David Howey, and um, also as well as developing lithium air at this stage, I moved to uh, commercial lithium ion cells and just we're basically finding out just how hard you can push these before they fail. What are their true performance limits? Basically opening up cells that are not designed to be opened up, sticking sensors in them and getting them to behave as if nothing had happened, which is a lot easier said than done. Um, so I actually continued that at WMG, University of Warwick, uh, with the 18650 cylindrical cells that you get from a Tesla Model S, well, very, very close relatives of them. And uh, yeah, published numerous papers along the way about you know, these instrumentation, instrumentation techniques, the, the data we got out of them, the, the, the learnings from that um, before moving back up to Scotland, building up a state-of-the-art battery test facility and then founding my own humble little consultancy, Plug Life Consulting. Did you, I mean, it's, it, 
obviously quite an academic background um, and you've now taken it into quite an applied area where you want to solve problems, real world problems. Did you always have an inkling that that's the kind of route that you wanted to go down? Um, I'd always wanted to go down a green route and it was actually the the first kind of um, realisation of this, that this could actually be a career, was when I was looking at the, the UCAS University um, prospectus, you know, the, the kind of the one that has all of the different university courses in it. And I'd kind of resigned myself to doing computing because it was something I was good at, but I'd kind of lost enthusiasm for at that stage. And I just stumbled across renewable energy at the University of Dundee and my eyes lit up. It's like, oh, wow, okay, this is very topical. This would have been back in 2006. So renewables were still very much in their, their infancy and they were quite often laughed at. Um, and certainly no one had thought of uh, a modern electric car at that point. So I knew that something within the renewables field would be of interest. Um, and then again, the chance encounter with the, the electric 106, uh, a very rare beast uh, with NICAD batteries. It was all pre-lithium ion, pre-modern charging infrastructure. And um, that made me think, oh, wow, these electric cars are awesome and I can definitely see them going places. I want to I be involved in this because it's a really cool tech that I'm enthusiastic about. So, yeah, I, I'd always kind of had a, a somewhat green mindset, but those two moments were really the, the catalysts of that. Um, and as for the, the car that launched my career, well, that was uh, used on my daily commute from Dundee to St Andrews for one pound's worth of ecotricity. Um, back, in the, back in the day, it was you know, one of the, the few kind of clean energy tariffs that there were. It's now in, well, actually, um, the, the kind of intermediate to, the, to that story is it was upgraded to lithium iron phosphate batteries, lithium iron batteries that are free of nickel and cobalt. Um, and it was upgraded to be compatible with modern charging infrastructure. It's now on display in Dundee Museum of transport awaiting its next big adventure um, and I do hope to be able to get some cutting edge batteries into it at some point but yeah it, it's, it's stuff that I, I was very passionate about and um, you know I, I couldn't imagine doing this if I wasn't enthusiastic about it this is you know having sat down crunched the numbers having lived the tech having driven it since 2009 um, it's absolutely the, the the way to go and uh, yeah yeah that's why I'm, I'm so enthusiastic about it. You certainly were um, coming to it at a, at a time when lots of people were barely thinking about it. Uh, an early adopter, people would say. I There's a couple of things there I wanted to pick up on. But first, um, just for anyone that's not clear really about what a battery is, how it would compare to having, say, the battery in a fossil fuel car that they might currently own. Mm, yeah, yeah. So... I suppose that, well, obviously an electrochemical battery is is one of a very, very broad umbrella of different storage technologies. Uh, so lead acid is very, very different from lithium ion, but lithium ion is the one that's typically used in electric vehicles. And even then there's quite a broad family, but they all behave in roughly the same way. So what you have is a negative electrode, the anode, which is made of graphite, which is just carbon. So it's layers of, of carbon sheets uh, of, of basically graphene, um, as it's called, um, into which some lithium ions are pigeonholed. They're intercalated pigeonholed. Um, on the other side of the cell, you have your positive electrode, the cathode, and that consists of a lithium metal oxide. So that's um, some combination typically of uh, 
nickel, manganese, and cobalt. So it's lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt oxide, with the nickel, manganese, and cobalt being in various different ratios depending on the exact chemistry. We're starting to see more nickel going in and a lot less cobalt going in. And the cobalt content of modern EV batteries has been slashed by about 90% over the past decade and continues to decline. There's one that's a wee bit different. I alluded to, and that's lithium iron phosphate, uh, which doesn't contain cobalt, doesn't contain nickel. It's a lot cheaper to make. It's more abundant materials, etc. Um, unusual to find in a car back in the early to mid 2010s because it had a lower energy density. Um, in other words, you couldn't squeeze as much range out of a given size of battery pack, physical size of battery pack. They were good for electric buses and things because you had loads of room to put batteries in a big vehicle, but not in cars. Now we are starting to see them appear in cars because of the amazing progress it's been made in squeezing even more energy density, even into the, the less energy dense chemistry. So Tesla uses zero cobalt in its standard range Model 3 and Model Y, and they get easily over 200 miles per charge. Anyway, so um, the point is that you've got the, you know, the heavy metal oxide on the positive side, graphite on the negative side, and the lithium ions just shuttle between the two. It's not like they're making a chemical reaction that forms a new compound um, on, on either side, like you would get with a lead acid battery, they are, it's, it's a rocking horse chemistry, basically, you know, it's just shuttling between the two. So the ions are going, the positively charged ions are going inside the cell between the electrodes through a separator, a kind of plasticky polymery separator, which is soaked in an electrolyte, an organic liquid, uh, which has a lithium salt in it, which makes it so-called ionically conductive. That means it allows the lithium ions to go through it, but it's not electrically conductive. So the electrons cannot travel inside the cell. If they could, the cell would immediately discharge itself and that would not be good. So what it has to do is it has to go the long way around, which is out through the external circuit, wherever you've plugged that cell, that battery into, which in this case is an electric car. Um, and that's how your lithium ion battery works. And you alluded to there, there can be a different mix and and it also sounds that a battery isn't a battery isn't a battery it, it depends mm. on mm -hmm. uh, when you bought this battery and the development of the whole process two things though what makes a good battery uh, and uh, is are we talking when we're talking about a good battery are, are we are we judging its performance on how far it will take a car in one go so there are a lot of different metrics that define how good a battery is, and it really does depend on the application. So for electric cars, you're not that bothered about how quickly it can discharge, um, because even although you get some very high performance electric cars, you don't actually need them to discharge as quickly as they would in, for example, a hybrid car, um, which might surprise you because it's a smaller electric motor in a hybrid car. It's mostly being driven by petrol. However, the battery in a hybrid car is teeny. So relative to its overall capacity, you know, it's, it's the energy it contains in kilowatt hours, the power that you need to be able to get out of it, kilowatts, is actually a lot, lot higher in a hybrid car. Whereas an electric car, you want to have lots of energy in it in terms of kilowatt hours. But the, the rate at which it discharges itself, that power in kilowatts is, is actually not anywhere near as, as, as big in relation to its, its energy. So in other words, the C rate, uh, which is current in amps, divided by capacity in ampere hours. Um, you know, the C rate is very low for an electric car in comparison to a, a hybrid car, which is uh, you know, a very high C rate to be able to, to deliver that high amount of power for a very short range. So for an electric car, you want something that can store a lot of energy so you can get as, as big a range as possible. Um, although that said, we're starting to see uh, cars being offered, electric cars being offered with 
smaller battery pack or bigger battery pack variants because it turns out that even the smaller battery pack is more than enough for uh, plenty of people, uh, especially with the um, you know the ever increasing number of rapid chargers. If you can get away with using less raw materials, if you can get away with um, having a lighter vehicle, it's less going to be less expensive because there's less battery in it. Um, and if you don't actually drive a substantial dif- uh, distance every day, then a smaller battery one can actually work out quite well. But if you do want maximum range, then obviously you go for the bigger capacity of, of battery. Um, you also want lifespan. You want you want cycle life. So in other words, how many times can you charge or discharge it before it, um, before it dies, basically? But the definition of end of life for an electric vehicle battery is actually 70% of its original capacity when it was new. So if we look at, for example, a Kia e-Niro, which is a very popular electric car uh, all over the world, but also in the UK in particular, um, it has a range of about 270 miles when it's new. So at end of life, that battery would still be on for about 190 miles per charge, bearing in mind that uh, the average UK round trip commute is 23 miles a day. You know, you're looking at almost a fortnight before you need to plug that in again. So even when a battery supposedly dies, it's still got loads of life left in it. And you can either, um, if it does die before the end of its 100,000 mile eight year warranty, which is typical for electric vehicles, very, very, very unlikely that it's going to die before then. We're seeing batteries that are on for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles, probably going to outlast the car. But you have the option. Obviously, if it, if it dies before the warranty um, expires, then replace it, because why wouldn't you? But if it's after the warranty, what's the point in replacing it? If you've still got plenty of range, just keep running it. If it's good enough for you, just keep running it. Um, and even if the range isn't good enough for you, chances are it's going to be good enough for someone else who wants to buy it off you. So it's actually still a valuable asset and you'll still get a decent amount of money for that car. This is why people shouldn't be worried about the battery life of, of modern electric cars because they've got so much range to begin with and they degrade so, so slowly. The batteries are lasting so long. Tesla reckon they've got a million mile battery, basically, um, with the latest chemistries they've got. They've, they've, they've done amazing stuff with Jeff Dan's research group over in Canada, who are a dab hand using special additives in the electrolyte to eke out that range even more. They're, they're really good at what they do. But anyway, sorry, back on, on topic. So you, you can either continue to run it or you can drop that battery out and replace it with a new battery, which will be at least the same range as when the car was new or potentially an even greater range. There's already been Nissan Leafs that have been upgraded from very short range to actually quite a long range by putting in a bigger capacity battery than when that car rolled off the production line back in 2011, 2012. Um, so, you know, there's, there's there's ways and means about it. There's ways you can be quite clever with it and really extend the lifespan of the car because an electric motor is so mechanically simple that it's not going to break for hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of miles as well so it's actually worthwhile repowering and keeping that vehicle going as for that old battery that's still got about 70 percent of its capacity left that gets reused in domestic or grid scale energy storage of which there's multiple examples of companies doing this and multiple products that are in operation in the uk including the flagship charging hub that belongs to Dundee City Council um, on Princess Street, which has a container ship, uh, sorry, a shipping container, I should say, that contains three old Renault Zoe electric car battery packs stacked on top of one another. And that helps to uh, power the charging hub 
that's charging the electric cars and taxis and so on that uh, that buzz about that very uh, very high EV proportioned city. Um, so what happens when they eventually die in grid storage? Well, I should point out that actually the grid storage lifespan uh, is even greater because the loads that the battery are, is subjected to are even less than in an electric car. It's a comparatively very easy life for it. So that goes on for absolutely ages. And eventually when it does die, it gets recycled using one of a number of increasingly efficient techniques, including uh, one that's being developed by the Relib project in, in the UK. It's University of Birmingham and University of Leicester. Um, they've developed a way to basically sugar the electrode material off of the metal foil onto which it's coated and then sprinkle a bit of fairy dust on it and then put it into a new, a new battery. And what we found is that some batteries that have been made from recycled dead electric car batteries actually perform better than the original battery did when it was new. This incredible, incredible progress that's being made here. So that's gone on a complete tangent from what makes a good battery. I do apologize. But for an electric car, long lifespan and lots of ability to cram in energy. And we've already got that, but we're still nowhere near done yet. But already the stuff that's here today is good enough for the vast majority of people. Well, I think that should allay people's fears about oh my goodness, I'm going to get a secondhand car and the battery's going to be rubbish and what am I going to do with it and where will it go? And you've really hit a lot of um, uh, myths that have been busted in that one one conversation. Going back to the raw materials then, I, I like the point about um, you raised the issue of actually you might not necessarily need a big battery depending on how much you're going to mm. use your car. That's quite a... That's quite, it's, I, I guess for a consumer, you might want to just think bigger is better, longer is further, everything is better. But actually, if, if you're trying to also save the planet, then perhaps if you're only looking at small mileage, then getting a smaller battery is going to fit the bill and it's going to use less raw materials. So these raw materials, um, these different metals that you're talking about, how, how environmentally friendly are they in terms of sourcing and abundance throughout the world? So if we look at lithium, first and foremost, there's about 14 million tonnes of lithium on land, which is oh, once upon a time, oh yeah, it's actually just over a billion 40 kilowatt hour Nissan Leafs worth of batteries. That's, that's how many that makes. So um, yeah, there's a lot of lithium on land. As for you know, if we need any more, there's 230 billion tonnes of lithium in the sea, which is enough for about 18.7 trillion Nissan Leaf batteries. So there's enough lithium to go around. It's just a case of uh, ethically getting your hands on it. Cornwall happens to have some of the most lithium-rich brines in the world down some of its old mines. And the, the mica and the granite that surrounds those brines also has lithium in it. And there's multiple companies working to extract that in the most ethical manner possible, um, including the new direct lithium extraction technique that has about a three times greater yield with much less fresh water use. So generally, if there's an ethical issue with anything to do with batteries or electric vehicles, someone's already well on the way to commercialising a solution for it. The progress has just been outstanding. I've already said about the near eradication of cobalt from uh, a lot of new electric car batteries. Lithium iron phosphate is becoming very popular because we've seen not just Tesla, but Volkswagen, Mercedes and Ford announcing that they're going to be using it in their kind of shorter range, but still actually quite a long range electric car lineup very soon. And Rivian, who are going to be making big electric pickup trucks too. So um, 
yeah, it's all kicking off in the cobalt eradication side of things. That also eradicates nickel. Nickel, um, the, it's been in the spotlight recently because, uh, well, Russia is uh, the exporter of between 13 and 20% of the world's nickel. Um, and the, But actually the biggest exporter is Indonesia, which unfortunately has a predominantly coal-fired grid. So in terms of actually um, processing that nickel, it's quite carbon intensive. However, British Volt, which is building a massive battery gigafactory in Northumberland on the site of an old coal-fired power plant surrounded by uh, lots of low-carbon energy and the landing point of the grid connection to almost entirely hydropowered Norway, so it's very, very low-carbon batteries they're making. Um, they have signed a, a deal there building a very large nickel processing facility in Indonesia that's going to be completely powered by renewables. You can use renewable energy, on-site renewables and, and off-site that's got a supply agreement with the um, with the factory in question, provided you've built those, those off-site renewables from scratch and you've not just cheated and bought some that was already there. You can do what British Volt have done and you can build an island of renewable energy in a sea of fossil fuels. And I would say this for all heavy industry, whether it's to do with batteries and electric cars or not, Absolutely, you should be plastering your roof with solar panels. You should be getting some wind turbines nearby. You should be doing as much as you can to decarbonize, not least because the cost of grid electricity is so expensive at the moment, funnily enough, because of the wholesale price of gas. Um, actually, offshore wind, which used to be deemed expensive, is making electricity cheaper today because it's paying back its excess um, payments uh, because of things called contracts for difference that used to act as a subsidy for them. They're now actually meaning that if the grid price is, say, 30 pence a unit and they're being paid uh, and their so-called strike price on this contract for difference was say 15 pence a unit they're paying back 15 pence because they were paid over the odds rather than under so renewables are making things cheaper and if you can have that on site thus bypassing the need to connect it to the national grid you are going to be you're raking in the profits by by or, or saving a, a great ton of money by actually utilizing much cheaper low-cost stable supply of, of, of energy in terms of, well, financially stable supply of energy, I should say. Um, yeah, sorry, lots of thoughts to, to unpack. Once again, I've gone off in various tangents. <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite all right. Going on to that point that, that you're raising about how the energy for getting these raw materials out of the ground and the process of using them, is the demand for making sure that every part of the process of battery production is as green as it possibly can be, is that coming from the consumer or is it coming from the car makers? What what is pushing that? Okay, it's not good enough just to find me these materials. Mm. They have to be they have to be produced ethically and yes. in a green way. This is this is an amazing question because it's driven by multiple things. Consumers are undoubtedly part of the equation, but what we've seen is that electric vehicles, for whatever reason, have been under more intense scrutiny than petrol or diesel cars, which quite happily burn fossil fuels with, you know, with, with gay abandon. And um, obviously there's a heck of a lot of environmental issues, not just with the burning of those fossil fuels out of the exhaust, but also the extracting, the refining, the, you know, the super tanker spillages, the, the corruption that goes on in, in countries that are doing oil production overseas and so on. You know, there's the, there are, there's so many ethical and environmental issues, which are just kind of glossed away, you know, they, they just kind of gloss over it and shove it to the side. One thing that they don't tell you, for example, is that um, cobalt, which obviously is, is scrutinized for electric vehicles, is used in the refining of petrol and diesel. Um, similarly, there's not the same scrutiny applied to smartphones or laptops whose batteries contain considerably more cobalt percentage than electric vehicle batteries. 
electric vehicles have been under this spotlight. And as a result, the, the intensity with which progress has been made to, to make them as ethical as possible has just been so strong. It's been one of the fastest decarbonizing sectors in 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 the world and genuinely you can be forgiven if you've been out of you know, if you've been out of the news for six months you can be forgiven for thinking oh yes this still remains a problem actually someone's already well on the way to solving it honestly it's 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 snowballing in terms of these efforts so yeah there's been the the public kind of criticism there's been consumers wanting to make sure that they are making an ethically correct choice an environmentally correct choice but also um we're now at a stage where renewable energy is genuinely cheaper than fossil fuels, hands down. So therefore, especially with the recent wholesale price and increase in, in gas and, and, and oil and so on, it absolutely makes sense to power your production processes using renewable energy, whether it's on site or whether you're just basing your factory in a very low carbon grid. So, for example, Norway, very high standards of living very high salaries and so on, but there are multiple battery gigafactories being built in Norway because despite the fact that the staff costs will be higher, the electricity costs should be pretty low because it's almost 100% hydro. Um, so yeah, Nor Norway was one of the first countries to be properly green and I don't think it even meant to, to do that. It was just a case of, oh, we have all this water, let's use it. And um, you know, as a result, that's now paying dividends in terms of industrial opportunities. Likewise, North Volt in Sweden, another very low carbon grid. British Volt in Northumberland, very low carbon part of the national grid, which in general is a fairly low carbon grid, very rapidly decarbonized over the last um, decade or so. That said, Scotland has been showing the rest of the UK up because we get most of our electricity from wind and the rest from nuclear and hydro. We do have one gas fire power plant in Peterhead. We occasionally take the, the dust cover off it and make sure it's still working. But, you know, smug mode disengaged. Um, the, uh, yeah, what, we, what we've seen, of course, is that it's actually making financial sense to power these processes using renewable energy to source, ingre you know, to source ingredients, uh, raw materials kind of locally and ethically, like Cornish lithium, for example. Um, the supply chains are being built up there. There's also sort of greater geopolitical um, security in, in doing things a bit more kind of locally and trying to develop those supply chains near where you are. Um, and we're starting to see governments mandating, well, the European Parliament, for example, has mandated that uh, batteries made in Europe will need to start to contain X percent recycled material um, you know, going forwards to encourage the recycling in that closed loop economy. Um, but that said, batteries, lithium ion batteries, you don't really need to encourage anyone to recycle them because they're not going to landfill. And in fact, having spoken to the team at Relib um, and a bunch of other battery recyclers, they've said the biggest bottleneck to improving recycling techniques and establishing battery recycling companies is that there aren't enough dead lithium-ion EV batteries to go around because they're still going strong in electric vehicles. So once those do eventually become available, my goodness, there's going to be a bun fight over who gets to recycle them. And uh, you know that will get fed into uh, the supply chain for making new batteries. But I suppose that the, the take-home message here is that yes, it does take a lot of energy to produce a lithium-ion battery, but actually one, those uh, energy costs are, are, or sorry, the, the amount of energy required are coming down with various new production techniques that are being developed. So watch this space. We're nowhere near done yet. And there's already been some fantastic progress there. And two, embodied energy does not equal embodied carbon. If you make the entire thing using coal, of course, it's going to be carbon intensive. But 
so many battery gigafactories, including in China, um, CATL, the biggest uh, battery manufacturer in the world, renowned for the quality of their lithium-ion cells used in the likes of the standard range Tesla Model 3 and a bunch of other manufacturers. They have just managed to get zero carbon accreditation for their uh, one of their, their major gigafactories in China. So, um, you know, this is this is progress that's been made all around the world. And as I said, yes, even if there's a lot of energy required, that energy within the EV world is increasingly coming from genuinely low carbon and renewable sources of energy. And a couple of things there. One of them, I just want to just go back to cobalt one second and yeah. say, why is cobalt bad? Because you obviously want we're trying to reduce it. Yeah, true, true. It's, it's very much the ethics thing, um, which does come up again and again and again. There are concerns around artisanal mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, artisanal mining does make up a small percentage of mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's generally larger scale, uh, better regulated mines. But where there is artisanal mines, which is a small percentage of those overall mines, there is also within that small percentage of artisanal mines, there is a small percentage of child labour. And that small percentage is still too much. That does need to be eradicated. But that is the percentage that makes it onto the newspapers who ignore all of the other uses of cobalt, including the smartphones and laptops and tablets used to write the article in the first place and just link it straight to the photograph of an electric car and go, oh, that's bad. Um, also forgetting that, of course, uh, cobalt is used in the refining of the petrol and diesel they use to drive their diesel car home from the office. So it's, yeah, it, it it's genuinely the only sector where, oh yeah, cobalt's used in jet engines and things as well and steel alloys and stuff. Genuinely, um, the only sector that's getting criticised for using cobalt right now is electric vehicles, but it's the one that's taking it the most seriously. Although, to be fair, um, there is the Fair Cobalt Alliance, um, of which British Volt, I believe, is a member, uh, amongst many other um, organisations who are actively tackling these human rights issues head on. And they're trying to ensure that you know, if there is artisanal mining, that it's safe working standards, children are not involved, wages are fair, um, and so on. You know, it's actually genuinely good uh, working conditions for everyone. And uh, one of the, I'm going to single out one company in particular for their excellent work on this. And it's actually in the smartphone industry. There's a company called Fairphone that makes very uh, modular, upgradable, reusable, recyclable smartphones. Um, and they uh, have tackled the, the cobalt situation in DRC head on. Uh, they, when everyone else ran away, they you know, who started looking for supply chains in other countries and so on, Fairphone rolled up their sleeves and said, we're going to do something about this and we're going to make this fair for everyone. So well done to them. And that's why I have a Fairphone sitting next to me just now. Wow, you're an excellent <laughs> added bonus, throwing the phone in there. So yeah, getting back on to um, the renew, going back to the renewable energy supply then. So I'm, I'm imagining everybody's going to start transferring when they need to change out their car rather than just all today change them all in one go mm. but as people change out their cars they might look at having an electric vehicle is our perhaps in the england or wales uh, gonna the grid is it gonna cope with the additional electricity uh, scotland seems to be slightly ahead of the game so. yeah scotland <laughs> yeah scotland is a, is a net exporter and with the 25 gigawatts worth of, of scotland uh, offshore wind turbines that have just been announced in the latest uh, round of offshore expansion we should be okay for the foreseeable but yeah um england in particular is, is a net um, importer at the moment but that said that's kind of looking at the national grid as a as a 
well, sorry, within England, if you look at the national grid as a whole, we're actually doing okay, especially with the grid interconnects to the likes of Norway, so that we can use excess hydro from Norway when we need it. And when we have excess wind simmer down at the back classes is a serious conversation. We can send that excess wind to Norway to uh, use in the pumped hydro dams to store it for later. So we, we basically have a country acting as a giant battery for us now. Thanks, Norway. But um in terms of whether we would cope with uh, you know thirty odd million electric sorry yeah thirty odd million electric vehicles in the UK, I have sat down and uh, crunched the numbers on this. If we were to all come home at five o'clock and, and plug in at the same time, then yes, we would melt the grid because you know it would be several times more than the peak demand that the national grid has ever experienced thus far. But that's not going to happen for a couple of reasons. One, we all have very different usage patterns. Um, even the you know within your sort of nine to five, you'd be surprised there's, there's different usage patterns. Um, and two, it's not going to make economic sense to plug in at 5 p.m. or at least to start charging at 5 p.m. Chances are you're going to have an off-peak tariff that rewards you with a much lower tariff for using electricity overnight when there is excess renewables on the grid and everyone's asleep. And actually you'll find that wind farms are often being curtailed and um, they're, they're being switched off because the grid can't cope with all of this wonderful renewable energy that they're producing because there's nowhere for it to go. You add some electric cars into the mix, they'll say, I'll take that electricity, thank you very much. You pay pennies for it. So you've saved a ton of money. The grid has managed to make more use of renewable energy and you've displaced the need for gas-fired peaking plants in the morning or indeed the evening having come home from work. So you've actually lowered the carbon intensity of the grid and of driving an electric car and you've helped to balance the grid overnight. The national grid themselves have said they can cope completely fine with every single car in the UK switching to electric. And as I said, having sat down and crunched the numbers and looked at that demand curve from the evening peak to the kind of the morning peak, that massive trough in between overnight, many, many hours where the demand is dead low. If you fill that trough with all of that excess renewable energy, um, you know, that, well, sorry, if you fill it with the demand from those electric cars and meet it with the demand from all that excess renewable energy, um, then the grid will cope completely fine. It's genuinely not that scary. Um, especially because, don't forget, it actually takes a lot of electricity to produce oil. I've, again, crunched the numbers on this. And uh, the UK's oil refineries, I think they're pulling close to a gigawatt continuously to produce petrol and diesel. So if you need less petrol and diesel, then you need less electricity to produce it which means that you can divert that electricity to charging an electric car, for example. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. Well, that's very reassuring as well. You seem to be absolutely hammering any of the issues that I, I mean, I have been asked a number of tricky questions that I couldn't immediately answer without looking at stuff and you, you've totally hit them, hit them, uh, hit them where it hurts, or, but just thrown facts at it and it made it very, very clear then there doesn't seem to be anything that is stopping the moving forward. And with any luck, that also, I say luck, let's not hope it's down to luck, that there will be less people also on the road. There is also the point about air pollution and electric vehicles. They're heavier, they're going mm. to have more tyre degradation, we're going to have poorer air pollution. Is that, what, is the, what is the facts on that? Yeah, I've heard a lot about that recently, and it's generally been assumptions from people who've not actually driven uh, an electric vehicle. So I've spoken to people who do drive electric vehicles and drive them a heck of a lot. Uh, this is a recent um, bit of, of sleuthing I've done on this. First of all, I can tell you that, um, okay, there's three main sources of, of particulate matter 
you know, the very fine particulate matter that uh, goes up your nose and into your brain and wrecks your, uh, you know, wrecks your lungs and your head and all of this. It's very nasty stuff. A lot of it comes out of uh, exhaust pipes, of course, but there's also um, slightly heavier particulates that tend to settle on the road, and that comes from your your brake dust. So it can sometimes be airborne, admittedly, um, but also comes from tires as well. So let's take those each of those in turn. Well, uh, your your petrol or diesel exhaust obviously doesn't exist on an electric car, so you've just cut that. And if you've ever walked past a diesel car that's sitting idling, so there's no way the brakes are being used, there's no way that the tyres are being used, but you've got that acrid stench in your nose of all of that particulate matter, that's a heck of a lot of pollution that you've just removed. Your nose isn't going to lie to you about that. So the next thing is going to be the uh, the brakes. Yes, an electric vehicle is generally a little bit heavier. It's the equivalent of maybe having an extra passenger or two versus a petrol car. But that said, electric motors are that torquey and powerful that you don't feel it performance-wise. Um, anywho, point being the extra weight, how does that affect the brakes? Well, because in a petrol or a diesel car, you're having to use that brake pad every time or the brake pads every time you're braking but in an electric car the motor basically goes into reverse and acts as regenerative braking which also charges up the battery and gives you more range and um, you rarely need to touch the mechanical brakes on an electric car which means that their lifespan is about two and a half times that of the brake pads on a petrol or a diesel car there's hardly any wear on to the extent that Volkswagen has switched from disc brakes, which are exposed to the elements and, and you know, they, they spit all of those fine particles into the air. They've switched from those on the rear of the Volkswagen ID3 and similar electric cars. There's a number of different ones that have that same platform, but a different badge on them. Um, they now use drum brakes, uh, which are enclosed. So they actually capture any dust and so on, and it doesn't get released to the atmosphere. The reason they've been able to do that is because you don't use the brakes anywhere near as much as you would in a petrol or a diesel car. So drum brakes being enclosed do not overheat. Uh, whereas they would in a petrol or a diesel car because they'd be used so often. In an electric car, they're used so comparatively rarely. Overheating's no longer an issue. Drum brakes are good to go. Expect to see more manufacturers following suit. You've just removed the suit issue. Um, as for tyres, uh, well, actually, again, I've had some people say, oh, electric cars need bigger tyres than the petrol or diesel equivalent. That is certifiable nonsense if you look at the Vauxhall Corsa petrol versus the Vauxhall Corsa e-electric. If you look at the Hyundai Kona petrol versus the Hyundai Kona electric. There's loads of other examples. They have the exact same size tires and, and brakes and so on. And um, in terms of the, the, the lifespan of those tires, if you drive an electric car like you stole it, because of the extra torque on the driven wheels, you can chew through tires a bit quicker if you want to. But if you drive normally, then you'd actually find that the tire, the tire lifespan is near as damn it the same. A uh, good example is... Um, there's a major Dundee taxi company, uh, electric taxis that they're running now. Um, they'd previously used uh, the likes of Skoda, Octavia, diesel saloons and so on. They find that the non-driven rear wheels, the, the tires last the exact same amount of time. The fronts, because the taxis are driven like they're stolen, they maybe get five or 10,000 miles less wear out of them. However, um, what we have found is that companies like Cleveland EV Mobile, who's a, a very well-renowned um, electric vehicle mechanic that serves nationwide they have mg5 uh, electric cars that they, they use as service vans um, and the first one that they got in hit twenty thousand miles within four and a half months and the tires they reckon are still good for another 15 20 000 miles which is on par with what they would expect with petrol or diesel vehicles and actually having discussed tire wear on 
Twitter and so on recently. Um, I mean, some people would say, oh, it's anecdotal. It's not valid. No, this is feedback from real world drivers. This is not some sort of lab simulation or something which actually doesn't really bring real world factors into it. This is a, a wide, a wide sample range of EV drivers. And a lot of them are saying, do you know what? We're getting the exact same tire wear out of electric cars, out of the petrol or diesel predecessors. And sometimes we're finding they last even better. One or two say, oh, yeah, I do go through them quite heavy. Then someone will say, yeah, but do you have fun with your throttle foot? And they'll say, yeah. So, you know, that aside, if you just drive it normally, once the novelty of, oh, this thing's fast wears off, genuinely the tire wear isn't as bad as you might think. It's, it's actually broadly on par. Yes, we do need to be tackling tire pollution. And there's some clever companies, tire manufacturers and um, companies actually trying to find some sort of static attraction device for the, the rubber that comes off of your tires that they actually fit to the car. And um, all sorts of clever solutions coming there, which will help petrol and diesel cars too, incidentally. So, you know, this is this all good news, but genuinely the pollution, the, the pollution that you get in terms of particulate matter from from electric cars is so so much less than on a petrol or a diesel sounds like another win mm -hmm. so as we come to a close and i honestly i could talk to you easily for another hour but i'm gonna have to wrap it up um so i'm gonna get in two small questions or two short questions maybe or maybe not depending on how long <laughs> anyway 2050 already mm. you're talking about so much progress uh, that's currently being made and how much uh, movement there is at every stage of the, the process of making an electric vehicle and the battery. What more progress is there to be made uh, to be tuned up to make it even better? How do you, how do you see the uh, electric vehicle market at, in 2050? So the, the 2050 market is going to be interesting because I think we're going to start to see a lot more shared ownership and a lot less personal ownership. Um, I think that my kind of generation is right at the cutoff point between, yeah, I, I'd rather own my car and someone going, do you know what? I actually can't be bothered with the hassle of owning a car or indeed I can't be hassled with learning how to drive. I'd rather just get an autonomous vehicle. And, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles are already here to an extent. They're not completely autonomous, but they're, they're helping an awful lot in terms of um, making motorway driving easier. But when it comes to Coventry inner ring road, now nah, you're on your own, mate. You know, it's that, that eventual kind of full um, self-driving and then mobility as a service shared basically kind of like a cross between a taxi and a minibus that finds the most efficient efficient route to take everyone from point A to point B without being on set schedules and so on. We'll see less vehicles on the road overall, but those vehicles will have a much higher utilization and they will be electric um, because it's the most efficient propulsion system. If you look at hydrogen, it takes uh, from renewable energy, hydrogen takes two to three times the amount of renewable energy to produce, then run through a fuel cell, which is only about 50% efficient, and then move a car a mile versus using that same renewable energy to charge a battery and then run an electric car many hundreds of miles. Well, sorry, one mile, but that battery could do many hundreds of miles. So yeah, your mobility as a service will be an increasingly common thing. Um, electric cars, you know, personal ownership, Obviously, there will still be some, uh, not perhaps not as many as today. Um, but in terms of 
how the kind of battery gigafactory of the future will look like scale seems to be king at the moment you know you need to be in the tens of gigawatt hours you know your hundreds of thousands of electric vehicle battery packs per year to be able to keep those costs end costs low um that said there will be a lot of perhaps what would be deemed legacy equipment within those gigafactories so the cell chemistries that win out may not necessarily be the ones that um provide even more range to like stupidly high levels because we're already at the stage where your average electric vehicle can go further than my bladder can without stopping and um, so you know you you're actually already at really good energy density today what we'll see are the chemistries that can be produced on existing production lines with minimal changes to that equipment obviously if you can eliminate things like the high temperature ovens for drying the electrodes and so on perfect you've skipped a step but if you need to replace that with an expensive piece of equipment um, which does something completely different uh, then you may find that some manufacturers are a bit more reluctant to switch over to that because it, it entails even more capital expense and they've maybe not quite recouped what they they'd invested you know in terms of billions and billions of pounds in the equipment for producing older styles of chemistries by 2050 though yeah those gigafactories should have recouped their losses and then some so we might be starting to see some very clever next generation chemistries um you know reaching the uh, reaching electric cars on the road but that said don't be don't be surprised if there's still some what may be deemed kind of legacy uh, gigafactories kicking about um perhaps minus the ovens as i mentioned because uh, they're doing dry electrode coating and you know binder free coating and so on um so yeah we'll, we'll see an increased efficiency probably even greater scale in terms of the size of those gigafactories but much more uh, efficient production techniques lower energy higher throughput um and of course we'll start to see uh, the circular economy coming in full force as the older sort of first tranche of modern EV batteries does start to genuinely expire and they start to get recycled. Um, so yeah, there'll be it'll be a very exciting time because we'll we'll start to see all of those chemicals that all those elements and so on have been brought into the UK in battery packs that were made in China from you know nickel from Indonesia or whatever you know those will remain in the UK those will get made into new batteries in the UK and we will have our own stockpile of materials ready to use again and again and again you can only burn petrol or diesel once and that's why we're not going to see much of that on the road by 2050. Amen to that <laughs> finally then Ewan because of the way your your work life is involved in batteries and I guess the connection to energy must be at the forefront of your mind as well. How has it impacted what you do on a personal level, if, if, it, if, if at all? What I've found is that uh, as soon as you get an electric car, you really learn what a kilowatt hour, what a kilowatt hour of electricity is, what a kilowatt of power is, all this stuff that you know, initially made you apprehensive to even change your electricity supplier because you thought it would be some scary thing that would take forever. You quickly learn is actually, you know, you, you get your head around it very quickly um, and it becomes second nature. And you're like, yeah, I could be on a, an off-peak electricity tariff that pays me, um, or doesn't pay me, but I pay less to charge my car overnight. So for example, I pay five pence per kilowatt hour to charge my car overnight, whereas uh, a daytime tariff from the before times before prices went do lally was about 15 pence it's now probably about 30 to 35 pence um so you know you're, it's a considerable saving because wholesale electricity is cheaper at night when there's excess renewables then you go tell you what that's all well and good i quite like to 
produce my own electricity. Thank you very much. And you get your solar panels. And then you realize, hang on a minute. Yeah, my solar panels are very good. They kick out, say, two or three kilowatts. My car charge point is trying to suck seven kilowatts during the day, though. So I need to find a way to ramp that down. And if you can't do it inside the car, um, then you're going to want a smart charge point that can do that for you. So you end up looking into a smart charge point and that automatically balances things. Or if you have a semi-smart charge point, you can manually kind of adjust the settings. So for example, it could be like 10 amps, roughly two kilowatts during the day, but then seven kilowatts when it's off peak overnight. Um, you know, you, you start toying about with electricity like that. Then you go, do you know what? This whole gas thing's horrific. I want to kick that. Let's get a heat pump. And then you get a heat pump and you go, why did I not do this earlier? For every unit, for every kilowatt hour of electricity, I used to run this heat pump. It scavenges three kilowatt hours of heat from the air and then turns that into a nice toasty house because it's thermostatically controlled. So it's not like freezing cold most of the time, then a short burst of high temperature from your boiler. It's always on low and slow, but it's hardly doing anything. And then, you know, at midday, you find the, the hot water tank heater to come on with the heat pump um, to, to give you another day's worth of showers and doing the dishes and things. Uh, or if it's winter, then overnight, as soon as the off-peak tariff comes in. And you, you, it almost becomes a game of how self-sufficient can I get and how low can I get my electricity tariff to be? And even if you're doing that from a, a, you know, a kind of thrifty uh, aspect of you know, how much money can I save, inevitably, the cost of electricity is linked to its carbon footprint. The cheapest electricity is, is free. It's the, the solar panels on your roof, if you can get that. The next cheapest is your off-peak electricity from excess renewables. Um, and the peak time electricity is the stuff that's typically you know, met with sort of gas-fired peaker plants, which is very carbon intensive. So that's the stuff you try to avoid. So yeah, you tend to find that uh, an EV, solar PV, a heat pump, and maybe some sort of battery storage system for your house start to become um, you know, the, the holy grail. Once you get one, you start to try and complete the set. And yeah, I, 2021 was a very, very busy year in that regard. I got my solar panels, got my heat pump, uh, got my smart charge point, and I would not look back. Um, admittedly, obviously, I was very lucky to take advantage of um, you know, certain, uh, like, for example, the decarbonization of decarbonization of heat projects that was on the go to do with heat pumps. But um, the cost of heat pumps is coming down considerably. So watch this space. We reckon that it won't be too long before they cost about the same as a new gas boiler to install. So yeah, I'm aware that not everyone has that money up front. And I'm aware that, you know, it's, it's expensive. But if you do have that money sitting there, then trust me, do it thank me later because it will it will it basically is a money multiplier and it's also incredibly ethical to do these things it's a great note to end on such great advice you and the whole uh, time we spent together is it's been phenomenal i've got so much in my brain i need to lie down now thank you so much uh, it's, it's been amazing cheers no worries thank you wow did you get all that Ewan is a master of his subject, and if you are in any doubt about the merits of decarbonising transport and going electric, then hopefully this conversation addressed those concerns. Although fewer vehicles on our roads are desirable, it is good to know that our future cars are progressively being made with the environment in mind. Every aspect of the manufacturing process seems to be under scrutiny. I was left feeling energised and hopeful from Ewan's articulate conversation. I would absolutely recommend taking a look at Plug Live Television to gain further details and a link can be found in the show notes. 
I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you, of course, for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to get automatic access to each new episode. And it would be lovely if you could rate, review and share the podcast too. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now.